0: Engaging Leader Podcast, episode 150, The Data-Driven Leader, featuring Dr. John Johnson. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Well, like it or not, as a leader, you need data for at least two reasons. Number one, so you and your team can make better decisions. And number two, to influence your employees, customers, or others to take action. In this episode, we're going to learn how to do both of these better. We'll learn how to overcome some pitfalls in how we interpret data so we can be confident about our ability to make data-driven decisions in a smart way. And we'll learn some tips for communicating data in a compelling but honest way to influence people's decisions and behaviors. Our guest today is Dr. John H. Johnson. He's president and CEO of Edgeworth Economics. He's a professional economist, an expert witness, an internationally renowned speaker, and the author of the book, Every Data, The Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. Dr. Johnson has helped some of the world's largest companies understand how to interpret data, and he's known internationally for his ability to explain highly sophisticated concepts in a simple, straightforward manner. In other words, he's not what you'd expect from an economist, and uh, his book is is much more enjoyable to read than you might expect a book by an economist to be. (laughs) John, welcome to Engaging Leader.
1: Oh, thanks. Great to be here.
0: Before we get into how to be a data-driven leader, I have to ask you a burning question about data. We're just a few days away from the inauguration of Donald Trump after what may be the most surprising U.S. presidential election since Truman defeated Dewey. What's your take this time on how pollsters got it so wrong?
1: It's a little bit complicated, and then in many respects, it's not. Um, Let's start by the premise that what a pollster has to do is predict the voting patterns of about 120, 130 million people with 500 people, 1,000 people. It's actually remarkable that statistics allows us to ever get that right, um, if you step back and think about it. In this context, there was a swath of voters in the Midwest, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, that clearly were being either missed by the sampling In other words, when the pollsters went, they were not capturing them or also um, just weren't speaking to pollsters. And that's mainly in its essence what went on. Uh, One of the other things I think that was pretty important this year, there were so many polls taken uh, to the point of just exhaustion (laughs) for everyone, (laughs) I think. But also when that many polls are taken, there's so much more noise. Usually think of more data being better. But it's not clear in this context that it didn't abstract a little bit from what was going on. And in the race to have the latest poll and this focus on what I call the horse race, is Hillary ahead or is Trump ahead? People didn't dig deeper into some of the other questions like when you looked at voters in the Midwest, did you see people that thought economic issues were particularly important or taxation issues, or trade issues, or immigration, whatever they were. There were signs there that people could have dug more deeply into and say, hey, maybe we're missing something with these polls.
0: Yeah, interesting. So how would you compare that to like, the Truman versus Dewey uh, debacle, which you did talk about in the book? Yeah.
1: The Truman debacle, as <laughs> I just said, was actually, they stopped taking polls about three, four weeks before the election and Truman was barnstorming. I mean, there is that similarity that he was on a train and he went all around the country. Uh, there was a lot of talk about the fact that Donald Trump was visiting far more places than Hillary Clinton at the end of the campaign. Um, but in that circumstance, it was a function of at the time, you relied on poll. I mean, talk about two dozen polls the week before the election. Imagine if we took the poll four weeks before the election, and that was the last one. But that's <laughs> kind of one of the biggest differences.
0: Hmm. Now, the book does a great job of telling stories that help reveal to us the obvious data traps. Can you give us an example of what, what are some of the most common things that we should be looking out for when we're presented with some data?
1: Well, I often think about it as sort of a series of triggers, okay? There's some key phrases that I like to point out to people that if you see them, you should just stop. Four out of five, right? This is from my chapter on what we call cherry picking. But we have an example of a baby food company that had a series of ads in the 90s where they talked about that four out of five pediatricians preferred the specific brand of baby food. When you actually look at the data and the numbers, it turns out that it was only 12% of all pediatricians. Now, you don't have to have any math training. to you know, four out of five, that's not 12%. <laughs> and the reason that it was potentially misleading is that when they did the survey – First they asked, do you, pediatrician, um, recommend that somebody have baby food one day at least once a week? And everybody who said no got taken out of the survey. Then they asked, well, do you recommend a specific brand of baby food? And everybody who said no to that also got taken out. So of the limited set of pediatricians who recommended baby food one day a week and recommended a specific brand, Four out of five did recommend this very popular brand. That's, you know, but that's kind of a, a little bit different picture than, you know, 80% or
0: 12%. It's amazing that someone could present that with a straight face as being halfway honest data.
1: Well, the Federal Trade Commission actually investigated and came to an agreement with the company um, that they had to represent the numbers in a different way, but you see these things all the time, and not everyone is, you know, it, there are lots of ways that people can be misled with data. Right? Another thing I was talking about is averages. People see averages. The average American. I mean, I gave you one. I said the average American consumes 34 gigabytes of data, <laughs> but a lot of things can go into an average, and so you, there's two things. One is just what constitutes the average. I have this. One of the things in the book actually we talk about is that the average mayor in the U.S. makes 60-odd thousand dollars a year. The average deputy mayor makes $83,000 a year. (laughs) Now, the deputy mayor's work for the mayor, how can that be? Well, think of what cities have mayors. Pretty much every city in the U.S., including the little tiny ones that only pay $10,000. What cities has a deputy mayor? The largest, most prosperous cities. New York has four deputy mayors. They make $200,000 a year. When you get under the average, you see, oh, that's not actually comparing the same thing. Um, And even as a leader, when you see something about being average, are you average? I mean, I love some of the quotes from behavioral economics or, you know, 95% of people say they're better drivers than average. How can that be? Right. Right. <laughs> so, thinking about what an average means to you and whether it applies to you or your business circumstance is critical in interpreting numbers.
0: I'm, I'm at least a better driver than all the people, than most of the people. The average driver in Lake Wobegon, I can tell you that.
1: <laughs> all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about uh, correlation versus causation? That's another one of those obvious data traps.
1: Yeah, so everyone talks about this concept. And the way I like to relate it to people is you can never pay enough attention to correlation versus causation. Not because correlations on their face are necessarily bad or wrong, but they're just limited in terms of what they mean. In the book, we talk about how you can make your kids smarter. And we basically explain how we read if you wear eyeglasses, if you get an iPhone, if you listen to the rock band Radiohead... If you learn how to juggle, uh, if you stay up late at night, all of those things are things that we read um, would make you smarter. And you can pick up any newspaper any day and see something talking about being a smarter consumer, being a faster, healthier, happier leader, member of society. And most of the time when they're talking about these things, they're talking about relationships they found in the data, but they aren't talking about the cause and effect The iPhone study is one of my favorites because what the study actually showed was that in states where there was the highest percentage of iPhone usage, that also was the states with the highest percentage of bachelor's degrees. Now, that doesn't mean having an iPhone makes you smarter. In fact, those states have the highest per capita incomes, which is exactly where you'd expect people who might go buy an expensive iPhone. So... There's usually more to the story, but the important point is to stop. And before you make a decision, I mean, if I'm thinking about, you know, my kids, I'm like, well, I'm going to make you smarter. I'm going to go buy you all iPhones. Now, probably not the right uh, approach.
0: Yeah, you do see that a lot. So uh, clearly you need to dig into what when you see a, a data that may be compelling to you, dig into it and, and try to get some sense for is this truly causing what they say it's causing?
1: Right. And I think it's, I'm not suggesting people have to go run their own experiments, but I just, before you make a decision, you should at least think about what is that underlying relationship. I talk about fitness all the time, and I'm always like, oh, love to lose a few pounds. What can I do? Oh, here's a new study that says if I eat five avocados a day, I'll lose weight. (laughs) Now, I know that can't be quite right. On the other hand, I'm still prone to think about it. And if it's something that's sort of, you know, a preconceived notion or you're looking for a solution, you might fall prey to it. Even someone who's studied statistics their whole life.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was uh, fresh out of college in uh, my early 20s and I had put up a few pounds on because I recently gotten married. And so I, I one day decided I better subscribe to Men's Health to get get in shape. And I, I think it was after the fourth or fifth month of receiving Men's Health magazine that i read something like um you know eating more uh, spicy foods will help you lose weight and uh it was contrary to something they just some other study they quoted the previous month and i it just hit me as a still a very young person that they're they're just whatever makes a good story makes a good headline they're throwing it on there at, without any true integrity regarding um principles that are going to help me be, be healthy. So that, that was one of those factors that early on made me start to become much more critical, apply critical thinking when anybody tried to show a study to me or present some kind of data.
1: I mean, headlines are fascinating because they can be, you know, how do you take a careful scientific study and put it into 10 words? Um, why I mentioned before we were talking before we got on line here that, um, I recently did a TEDx talk with my co-author, and the entire TEDx talk was focused exclusively on how headlines mislead. So one of my favorites was one in five CEOs are psychopaths, new study says. (laughs) Now, I am a CEO of my company, and I don't think I'm a psychopath. I hope my employees don't think that. When we actually dug a little deeper, what we found was it was actually a study of about 250 or so managers in the supply chain – professionals industry and it was based on a personality survey, not actually observations of what people did. It's just a very different headline. And in fact there weren't really CEOs in their sample. (laughs) So
0: closely associated with headlines is using keywords or trigger words like only. And you you provide some good stories in the in the book about how only can be used one way or the other that paints a a different picture from what's really the reality?
1: Well, I think the point when you think about sort of loaded words or words that characterize many, some, only, (laughs) all, none, um, there's a level of quantification and almost an appearance that something is very uh, rigorously calculated. Um, But oftentimes you have to watch for the qualifiers how things are described I mean a lot of the message from my book is not about turning people into mathematicians in their spare time but just to heighten the awareness of the types of things that one might see on a daily basis where they could step back and just pause you know I always say to people when I talk about this that people actually have pretty well def- well-developed intuition if they stop and think <laughs> but if you're surfing the web, reading the newspaper, see this really exciting headline, click through. You don't always – it's almost like you suspend that care when you approach these things. And it's becoming more important. I mean in our political discourse, there's arguments about what is a fact. Um, In our business lives, trying to make decisions about the people that work with us, about corporate policy, about where we're going to take our business. I mean, in virtually all aspects of your life, you start to encounter these things.
0: So if you're a leader of a large team and one of your employees or maybe a consultant brings you a, um, some data, either a report or some fact that is supposed to help make a, a key decision, what do you do as a leader? Um, I I'm, I'm, was thinking about in, in the last chapter of the book, there's sort of a final checklist of uh, things that you you suggest is that a good place to start when you when you're presented with that kind of situation
1: look when i'm presented with that type of information as i said i'm a leader of a data-driven company so i similarly get that kind of information um first what's the source of the data how is it collected how is it compiled is it actually relevant to my specific business we see these things all the time where you know I'm an economic consultant, so I can't say there are industry publications for economic consultants. <laughs> <laughs> but but there are all sorts of in just about every industry, there's some type of publication. And you see data that's based on some survey data or some, you know, what's the timetable for the data. You know, so the first thing is just questions about what the data might actually be. Then thinking about what can I realistically learn from this data? Does the data support? the position that the article, that the white paper, that the research is trying to make. Again, that doesn't require some specialized skill. It's more about thinking about cause and effect, averages, um, what might be the motivation for the paper. Are they trying to sell me some kind of service or product? Maybe I want to view that a little differently. Uh, A lot of it is doing a lot of the things I think good leaders do allowing yourself to ask important questions.
0: So for one thing, I I guess a a trap that a lot of people fall into is when they're presented with something that's a, a, quote, fact, they take it at face value, or maybe, and they don't even realize that they are actually being presented with data. Hey, this is data. It came from somewhere. Let's dig into it and think about it a little bit. And then also sometimes I think we get overwhelmed with, the science of the data or the, just the sheer volume of it. And so we just sort of let the experts tell us what, what their recommendation is based on the data.
1: Well, and I think part of that is, you know, look, there are some very large data sets now that get used on a regular basis. The notion, though, that you can't come up with intelligent questions about even the largest types of data sets, you know, I say to many business leaders that you know your business better than anyone else. So how a given data set might apply to your business, how you think about that, is going to be a very important part. Now, I can't guarantee you'll always get it right, but at least if you sort of put in some safeguards to think about both strengths and weaknesses, what are the limitations of the analysis, and not just taking the fact that somebody's hung a number on a position as proof that that's necessarily correct.
0: Yeah. So... Check, see if the facts are even right. Is the data accurate? Uh, understand where the data's coming from. Do those people have an agenda? Which, if so, then that, that'll make you feel a little more um, suspicious, perhaps, of the data. Not not that it's definitely wrong, but you just need to then look at it a little more closely.
1: Right. I mean, a lot of this is about being, and I say it, being a sound consumer, What I, what I'm referring to is just the fact that once you can recognize information is coming at you and start to frame it in terms of, is this useful for what I'm trying to understand? If you can do that, that takes you pretty far down the road. And yes, it might be that you don't understand a specific statistical technique. But if you're relying on an expert to explain something, then they should be able to explain it to you. And if they can't, that's another sign that something's probably not right.
0: So now, if we turn this around, and we've been we've been concerned so far in this conversation about how do I, as a leader... Um, make sure that my team and I are using data correctly, that we're uh, interpreting it right to help us make smarter decisions. Now, how about when I want to influence people to take action or to influence um, people's, uh, either whether their behaviors or their opinions on a certain topic, there's right ways and wrong ways to go about doing that, either ways that are effective or ineffective, or maybe ways that are actually lack integrity. Uh, What kind of What points would you give to a leader in that place?
1: Well, I think first, you want to be an honest broker with the information. And getting to the right answer means looking at both that which supports your position and that which does not, and understanding what it means and why. The other thing I'd say is the focus on communication is so critical because it's just another way that you are trying to convey points and messages. There are some people that you can show them a picture of the data, and that will mean a lot. There are some where you might use a number or a statistic. I find that being thoughtful about who my audience is and what it is they will need to understand things better is a really critical part of the skill set for using data effectively.
0: Now, sometimes you, you brought up cherry picking as sort of a, a hazard, but when we're communicating data, there's sort of the opposite of cherry picking, which is trying to give so much information to make sure they have the complete picture that we overwhelm them and they can't see the forest for the trees. How, where do you find the, the right line for stripping away till what's left is really the most important for that particular person's need?
1: Look, that is going to vary question by question, circumstance by circumstance, which may not be a very satisfying answer. <laughs> but as a practical matter, getting to the essence of what the data can credibly tell us is really where the power of the information comes from. But you don't want to strip it down so much that you are missing the critical caveats, the assumptions. Um, I try to think about what are the most critical things for the points I am trying to make. Are there any things that I see in the data that are so significant that they would lead someone to a different conclusion and make sure I'm disclosing those? But I don't have to disclose, well, you know, I had a 50,000 data point set – And there was one outlier that was negative 25,000, so I took that out. Yes, somewhere in technical documentation. But if I'm doing a presentation, I'm not going to get up and make a big deal about the one (laughs) observation. But there are people who do that, We just will laundry list. I did this, and here's my code, and I used SAS version 7b.dat. Nobody cares. (laughs) Um, If you want my numbers and you need to replicate them, we'll give them to you. That's
0: the way to go. I once attended a conference and one of the speakers was from IBM who usually has outstanding speakers. Um, This guy, it was his first time speaking and he was presenting a case study and he spent the entire 90 minutes uh, caveating the story that he was about to tell with all the data that he thought that you needed to know so that you would come away with the right conclusions. And the conference speaker actually had to cut him off like your time's up. And he never got to tell the story. (laughs) Right. So beware. Don't be that guy.
1: Right. I mean, that's the difference between doing the science and all the things you have to concerned about and how you explain it. And so, yes, a sound data analyst needs to know all those pathways, needs to think about those things or at least know why they did or didn't consider them. But when it's time to present, you need to know your audience to know and obviously if i'm presenting to a technical audience of other data scientists or economists that's going to be a very different talk than when i talk to an industry association that's bringing me in to hear about sort of broader messaging it just depends
0: now a lot of the stories that you tell in the book come from the field of advertising and marketing and um, and so though and a lot of those are stories where they've skewed the data or cherry picked or, or whatever but um it seems like, on the other hand, there are a lot of lessons that leaders can glean from the world of advertising and marketing on how they use data to tell a story. Uh, so you don't want to necessarily throw all that away. But the way that the, your, your classic commercial, for example, simplifies the message and focuses in on a really strong point, makes it visual, does use certain very strong words like only or less than or whatever, do you have any comments on on that? What, what, what are some key things to use to tell the story more strongly?
1: Look, I think it comes back to knowing your audience first and foremost, right? I need to know. I mean, if I'm meeting with my executive team, somebody in that room better be paying attention to the details if we're going to go embark on a capital investment or undertake some big initiative or change an HR policy. Somebody has to know all those details and be able to answer the questions. If we're talking about general concepts for statistical literacy no i'm not going to get into all the details on why the the forecasting model that was used at fukushima was wrong and they should have done a different kind of modeling or you know i'm going to give the big picture so as a leader it's the same thing right you're looking at your group and just like you might tailor your assignments to deep different people's talents or strengths i think messaging is a critical as well um, in terms of guidance again i, I come back to If you spend a lot of time framing the question appropriately, spending that upfront investment to get a real idea of what you want to answer, what you think this information, that will guide you through the communication all the way. And I do find that very single-minded focus on where am I trying to end up, not the answer I'm trying to end up with, but what is the question I want to have an answer to at the end of this, that will help me to focus and really heighten what matters and what doesn't.
0: That makes good sense. So so begin with that endpoint, and then make sure you frame the question appropriately, and that'll lead you to how to present the data.
1: More often than not.
0: Let's talk a little bit about visuals. Uh, we've talked about visuals before on, uh, on this podcast. On episode 127, most recently, we mentioned how they can be very effective in making data seem more trustworthy. And uh, you actually talk quite a bit about that in the book, um, like the that research from Cornell. I don't know if you have that handy uh, about the the um, how much more powerful people believe it.
1: Right. So the research you're referring to, I don't have all the numbers, but the notion that if you have a scientific study where you apply a picture or the name, for example, this was a, a fake pharmaceutical drug. If you apply a name, a fancy name, people tend to believe the claims more. Um, than they do when it's just sort of the the technical jargon or without a picture to sort of reinforce the study. Um, that comes back to how people learn and, and interpret information. Um, visuals can be incredibly powerful and also another source of great misleading. <laughs> we do take on several studies in the book. In fact, there's one we talk about where we liken or we show how the exact same set of numbers about how mortality relates to exercise – how I can show you five or six different patterns to make it look like there's a really strong relationship. There's a really strong negative relationship. There's no relationship, (laughs) all based on just changing the axes and how I showed the data. So that's a little hard to capture on the podcast. But the point is that there are lots of ways that people change pictures of data. And so thinking to yourself, when you see a picture, what's the data? Why were certain choices made? If you ever just look at a graph and just think about, hmm, why does it go from zero to ten? Or why are the bars, you know, uh, in increments of three or six or ten? It's just an interesting discipline that will help you start to spot, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I did this. So much of everything I talk about is just teaching people to ask more questions. Uh-
0: the it is and it's fascinating just by adding a visual causes people to pay more attention to believe it more uh, another study you, you quoted in the book is how on restaurant menus just adding icons and photos will increase sales up to 30% or have increased sales up to 30% uh, and so if we've got if we're a leader and we're trying to communicate some data or to back up uh, maybe a change initiative or something with data if if we can go the extra take the extra step to put it into a visual and especially a well done visual, um, it's well worth it because we're because it, people are much more likely to pay attention and believe it and act on it.
1: Well, I mean, I think again, the notion that people have different learning skills and sort of react to information in different ways. Um, th- the idea behind using different pictures using numerical depictions, using words in different ways, you know, you're basically capturing different learning styles. Um, You know, some of those studies might still be picking up some correlations, right? May not be entirely causal, so we wanna be a little careful. But I do think just the discipline of saying, I can show the same information in multiple ways, and if you looked at any one piece of it, you would still figure out exactly what my point is, that really shows you've honed your messaging well.
0: So, the book that we've been talking about is Every Data, the Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. And uh, I think it's a, a really good, almost like a textbook, except it's a lot easier to read than a textbook, um, for helping somebody become a more confident consumer of data and and uh, be more able to, to make smarter decisions based on data. What, can you tell us a little bit, uh, John, about the work that you're doing and um how people can find out more about you and how beyond reading your book or and, and, and you speaking, providing the book, how are you working with uh, individuals and companies in, in your role?
1: Well, I uh, own a data-driven consulting firm in uh, Washington, D.C. called Edgeworth Economics, and we do a wide range of consulting, mainly involving the intersection of economics and giant data sets. Uh, I am an economist and a statistician by training, and I do a number of things and everything from being an expert witness where i've testified in cases with giant data sets i've worked with the nfl players association on their studies on what plays had the most injuries kind of unique data there we just do a wide range i mean my firm is the type of firm you come to if you have a data set or you have a problem you're like we want to understand it better and in almost every type of engagement we have and those can range from and I don't have a lot of data at all, I want to make sense of this, to I have so much data, how do I process this? That's what we do, just deal with real practical questions on a daily basis.
0: One thing that caught my attention, I noticed on your LinkedIn page that you've done work with Google. And I thought, don't they have enough data people, data heads in- <laughs> at Google? Um, like, what, what would cause someone like Google to, to reach out and need, need uh, your assistance?
1: Well, our firm does, as I said, part of our firm is that we do expert witness testimony. And when you're an expert witness, you have to come in as an objective outside party to look at data or information. And um, although those engagements, there's not a lot we can say publicly about them. It's generally in the context of coming in and saying, okay, here's this data there. Here's this dispute. What do you independent third party expert think went on? What do you think the data tells us? Got
0: it that makes that makes good sense now do you also help well I know you do some i, I there are some stories in the book, so I'm asking a leading question uh, admit it up front you help um specific companies who have specific situations either interpret the data that they have or tell the story um in a certain way like if they're if they're trying to make a proposal somewhere How do I tell a story with this data? No,
1: no, we can do any number of things. I mean, again, I think of us as sort of very high-end data experts that view the world in terms of how can I first get the most rigorous, credible analysis from the data that I have, and how can I explain it in the simplest, most uh, compelling way possible that is true to what the data tells us right? I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the hallmarks of what we have to do is objectivity. And sort of that means sometimes you find answers that clients don't like, but that's an important part of what data analysis is about, is giving us some foundation. I kind of always say, it's interesting in my line of work, I kind of do get to go into a number of different industries, learn everything about them, and I learn everything about them so I can actually interpret the data correctly. You know, it's not in a vacuum. You don't just say, so send me that data set. Okay, here's what it tells you. I need to understand better what the context is, what the business is, what the decision making is so that I can bring the data to life.
0: So how can folks find out about you and, and uh, stay in touch with what you're, what, you're, what you're working on on a regular basis?
1: I have a website, uh, johnhjohnsonphd.com. That's where you can see everything about the book and my TEDx talk. I Also, my company is Edgeworth Economics, and that's also our website if you want to see about that as well. Um, I do have a blog on Huffington Post and sort of try to... Uh, again, the election has ended. I did a lot of media around the election <laughs> talking about some of these polling issues, um, but I do speak at conferences and the like. I just got back from the Consumer Electronics Show, actually, where I spoke about the book. So that's something I really enjoy doing is just taking this message to different audiences and trying to explain kind of neat stories about data.
0: What's your, and what's your favorite social media to be using?
1: Uh, I use Facebook the most, and then I use Twitter quite a bit. Um, Twitter is overwhelming, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, I've learned a lot more about Twitter through the whole process of having a book and when I go to conferences and speak, um, and then of course the presidential elections brought that into focus more. Um, but I actually still find Facebook to be the, the most intuitive to me. You have a group of friends, you put up things that you want them to see. Yeah. That's just makes sense to me. Yeah.
0: Well, so on both Twitter and Facebook, your, your handle is every data, which, yes. is, uh, which is also the name of the book, Every Data, the Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. Well, Dr. John Johnson, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader.
1: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure, Jesse.
0: All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the information and links that Dr. Johnson mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 150 as in episode 150. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at Aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.